Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this uh, first epistle that John writes, he writes about the struggles that go on in the life of the church in the first century. He writes about the struggles, the difficulties. He writes about the lack of assurance of salvation. He writes about the, the heresies that were going on, the false teachers that were causing all kinds of havoc in the life of the church. John is addressing all of these things to bring stability into the minds of the people of God. Notice what he says in 1 John 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in, in the name of the Son of God. So John writes that they would continue to believe, to know, to have understanding, to have confidence that they have everlasting life. I'll deal with that um, sometime here. The, the two words that are often used interchangeably in Scripture, but there is a, an important uh, distinction between the two. The Greek word is the same. Uh, it's translated once, one way certain places and one way in another place, but there is an important understanding between the two. And so uh, let me just address that now. E eternal life. We talk about eternal life. We talk about everlasting life. What's the difference between the two? Because the Bible says that there is, we have everlasting life, and then John says that we have eternal life. It's translated that way. Uh, the Greek term eonos is the same in both occasions. So why is it one is eternal, the other is everlasting? Properly speaking, understand this, God alone has eternal life. We are granted what's called everlasting life, life that goes on, life without an end. That is granted to us. We don't have that inherently. Alone, God has that. That is eternal life. No beginning and no end. That's what it means. So understand the distinction that when it even says in the English translation, which I don't think it's a correct translation. It's better, it's, it's more uh, in keeping with that distinction of saying everlasting life. We have been given life that goes on and on and on. But God alone, properly speaking, has eternal life. You need to understand those types of distinctions. And the scripture mentions them. But anyway, John is dealing with lots of things. He is asking people, because there are always those... Did you notice that he says, if we say? There are people that say and don't do. We have that in James. Not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. If you're only a hearer of the word, you're self-deceived. You've miscalculated. You don't understand that the word was to live according to the truth. We are to live the truth. We are to do the truth. We are to be practicing the truth. So John makes a, some tests that go on throughout his epistle. He speaks about a moral test. He speaks about a practical test. He speaks about a doctrinal test. And here we find this, doctrinally speaking, is if we're understanding what the Scriptures teach about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is where so many go astray, is on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you go astray on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Salvation alone is in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to come to the Father but Jesus Christ. You cannot be misunderstood, mistaken, astray on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We must understand this clearly. 
John is dealing right off from the beginning with a Gnostic heresy. Now, Gnostic is a word that comes, it was designated to certain teachers, and it comes from the Greek term gnosis, which means knowledge. And these false teachers were teaching the people that they had to have a higher knowledge and understanding more than what the scripture would give. And so these Gnostics were like gurus that they would call the people to come to them so they could give them a higher understanding of what the scriptures teach. Now that's a false teaching. The word of God is clear. The word of God is plain. There is no higher level of teaching that is only for those initiated into that particular club. There is also the heresy of docetism, the docetic heresy. The the docetists taught this, that the flesh is evil, spirit is good. There is no possible way that God could become incarnate in the person of Christ and the two would become together. There is no possible way that that could happen. So the docetics taught that Jesus was just a phantom. And that's what docetism means. It means a phantom, an apparition, an appearance. That's all. It just seemed to be, but it really wasn't. John is dealing with that. He's dealing with that clearly and strongly by the, the, all of the apostles dealing with the person of Christ himself. You notice what he says in our text. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Now, immediately, there are those that think he is just simply communicating about the message. John isn't just communicating about the message. He is communicating about a message. But he is communicating about the messenger. The messenger of the covenant. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ. John is dealing with the docetic heresy and saying that God incarnate Jesus Christ. That God took upon himself another nature. Truly God, truly man, and he appeared in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. That which was from the beginning. The preeminence of Christ. Christ has always been, he is the second member, God the Son of the triune Godhead. There never was a time that he wasn't. What the second member of the Godhead has done is take upon himself humanity. Now, I I like to make the distinctions. I do not like the term God-man. I I detest that term. I hate when people say that. And I hate it because it's not understood properly. When people think of God-man, they think of some amalgamation, some mixture of God and man, and and there it is. And then it's not as what it's speaking of. God did not become a man. What does that say when people say that? What is that perceiving? God became a man, so therefore, He must not be God because He became a man. False teaching. We need to be clear about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not like a centaur. 
You've seen them in some of these movies where there's uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Half horse, half man. And where the horse begins or where the man ends, I don't know. It's just a mixture of the two. That is not Jesus Christ. He has two natures. And they are eternally distinct. Divine nature and a human nature. And there is no communication of attributes with regards to the natures. There is no change, no confusion, no separation, and no division of the natures of Jesus Christ in His person. Humanity, deity. He is not 100% God, 100% man. Use confessional language. He is fully God, truly God, fully man, truly man. It's according to His Godhead, He is at no time absent from us. According to His manhood, He is not now on earth. We come to the Lord's Supper. Where is Christ? He is not in the bread and the wine. We do not kneel and worship Him in the bread and the wine. He is not now on earth, physically speaking. Where is He? He is at the right hand of the Father. And as the Catechism says, He is there to be worshipped. Not here, as if we're worshipping Him in the bread and the wine. He is there. He is sitting on His throne. He is ruling over all things to the glory of His Father. According to His divine nature, He is at no time absent from us. Distinctions. Not a division, not a separation, but a distinction. When Jesus said, I thirst, that's not the divine nature. The divine nature doesn't thirst. It's the human nature that thirsts. When Christ was in the front of the boat and He was asleep, it's not the divine nature that's asleep. It's the human nature that sleeps. When Jesus was hungry, it wasn't the divine nature, it was the human nature. When Jesus died on the cross, the divine nature could not die. It's the human nature that died on the cross. We've got to make distinctions. Or you start singing heretical songs like John Wesley penned. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. It's not mystery That's contradiction. That's illogical. What does it mean to be immortal? You don't die. But that's what he says. It's a mystery. You know, it's a a holy mystery. That's confusion of the mind. The person of the Son of God died. And we know that it wasn't the divine nature. It's the divine nature that undergirded his manhood. That enabled him to sustain the burden of God's heavy wrath upon the cross to then redeem a multitude which no man could number. That's the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ of your imagination. Not what does Jesus mean to you? What does Jesus mean? That's the question. What does Scripture declare him to be? Who he is? What he has done? That's what's important. So John is addressing that. And he says that that which is from the beginning. Christ has been from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. No beginning, no end with regards to his divine nature. 
Regards to his human nature, he had a beginning. Regards to his human nature, he died. Regards to his human nature, he rose from the dead. But with regards to his divine nature, he always has been the second member of the Godhead. Now, there's mystery, beloved. You can't wrap your mind around that. All that we know in our experience is things that come into existence. Things that are born, things that die. You raise this and you raise up that and you grow this and you grow that. And things live and things die. And trees grow and we cut them down. And it goes on perpetually in this life. We know nothing in our practical experience of something that has been forever. There never was a time that it wasn't. But this is God. This is God. The question, how could there be anything if God wasn't? Eternal. And it is mysterious to us, but he has always been. And we must believe what the scripture declares. That's our responsibility. We are responsible to believe what God says in his word. And like I said this morning in Sunday school, oftentimes people will go to Bible studies and what does this verse mean to you? It's completely irrelevant. The question is, what does this verse mean? Because I can't get about applying things in my life if I don't know what the text means. And it's not what does it mean to me and what does it mean to you. It's what does it mean. And then when we understand what the text means, we can apply it in our lives. And the applications may be different. But the truth of the text is not. You can't have your interpretation of this is true because I believe it. You might believe that and that's okay as long as you believe it. Truth isn't person relative. You understand that? What is true is true for me and you, period. Christ has been from the beginning. And John, dealing with the docetic heresy, he says, and we have heard. Which we have heard. We heard him. John walked among Christ. He was one of the disciples of Christ. We have seen him with our own eyes. He looked upon him. He wasn't a phantom. He had a real human body. John laid against his breast at one point in the upper room. He had a real human body. I touched him. I stood next to him. I sat next to him. My eyes beheld him. My ears heard the Lord. He was no ghost. I watched him sleep. I watched him eat. I watched him touch. I watched him heal. I watched the Lord walk upon this earth. We walked on the beach. And I saw his footprints. Phantoms don't leave footprints. I saw it. We've looked upon him, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Notice what John calls Christ, the word of life. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. And he says, and I give them eternal life. The everlasting life, the life that goes on and on and on without an ending. It has a beginning. When we're born of the Spirit of God, we enter into eternal life. 
When does eternal life begin? Now, beloved. When you're believing on Christ, now. Not after this life. Now, it begins the moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are born of the Spirit of God. You are regenerated. You are trusting in Christ. It begins now. And so this life, Christ is the one who grants this life. In the book of Acts, He is called the author of life. He is the one who begins life. He is the one who has given a certain duration of life. He has done this. Life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Let me ask you, do you have life? None of you breathing right now. That's a temporal life. That, that's the captain obvious statement, isn't it? If you're breathing right now, you have temporal life. Do you have life everlasting? Have you entered into union with Christ. Beloved, are you in Him and is He in you? This is the designation that Paul gives in Galatians 2. That I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We also find in John 15, He is the vine, we are the branches. How do I know that I'm a branch in Christ? Because I bear much fruit. That's the life of the Son of God pulsing through the soul of the redeemed. They produce fruit. And that fruit remains. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They are loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are loving their neighbors. They are striving to love their enemies. This is life in the Son. Do you have life, beloved? Are you trusting in the author of life, the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you believing the gospel? Or have you come to the point where you're trusting in you? And you think to yourself that I've done this and I've done that and I'm a pretty good person and I've been a member of this church. Truly, I'm in the kingdom. I throw money in the offering plate come to the fellowship meals, I I do all the functions. Why wouldn't God love me? If that's your thought this morning, you're not believing the word of life. When you believe on the word of life, when you believe the gospel, when you believe Christ, not believing things about Him, but believing Him. Sunday school kids will tell you things about Jesus. And they'll tell you things about Jesus without believing Jesus. They have facts about Him. They have been taught about Him. But they don't know Him. They're not born of the Spirit of God. We have to be praying for our children to that end. That God would raise them up spiritually. Because I can't do it. And you can't do it. God alone can do it. We have to be praying that the Lord works in our children. But they'll tell you things about Jesus without knowing Him. Do you know Him? Good point to throw in that analogy of the tightrope again. You remember the tightrope. True story about the man that walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
brings a wheelbarrow. They hoisted it up to him. He walked over and back with a wheelbarrow. And it was asked to a man in the crowd, do you believe I'm able to do this? And he said, yeah, I just saw you do it. Get in the wheelbarrow. You see, that really is, is right at the, where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Don't say that you're believing I can do it, but you don't have faith to get in the wheelbarrow. Crude analogy. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't tell me you believe Jesus if you don't do the things that he says. Don't tell me you believe and you deny him. Don't tell me you believe and you don't know things of Christ. Do you believe the word of life? The life was manifested. John picks up on, we find this in John 1 as well, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what John says, the life was manifested. So again, thinking in, in the context of what John is dealing with, with the docetic heresy, he is saying that he, he was seen. He was a reality. He had a real human body. It was truly human and divine in one person. This is who Jesus was. He was manifest. The life, faneru. It was made clear. He, he appeared to us. That's what it means. The appearance. Christ appeared. And we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life. This is what they were preaching. That eternal life which was with the Father. This is the eternal life that took upon the form of a man. Jesus Christ. This eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He appeared to us. He was made plain to us. He's declared. This is what we've always got to declare. This eternal life. When we were at the Christmas gathering and the song was sung, it's about the cross. It's boiling it down. The cross is about Christ. Christ. The context is Christ. The cross has no meaning apart from the context of Christ. The blood of Christ. The redemption of Christ. People say things like this. That a picture is worth a thousand words. No, it's not. Have you said that before? Picture is worth a thousand words? Absolutely is not. It has to be interpreted. If you didn't know Christ as truly God and truly man on the center cross, you didn't know anything about the gospel, what would that picture of three on the cross mean? How would you understand that? What does the blood mean apart from the paradigm of the work of Christ? What does the cross mean? And what was the cross of Jesus Christ? What was that all about? He wasn't dying for his own sin. He had none. He was dying for the sins of others. And yet, if you would just see that picture, what would you say? How would you interpret that without the word revelation given to you that he was dying as an atonement for his people? He was laying down his life for his sheep. It's communicated to us. 
You see, we grab a hold of things all the time in this world that people say, and we think, oh, that's so profound. No, that's stupid. That's just stupid. What does this picture mean to you? You know what? What is this picture about? Tell me what it's about so that I can communicate that truth to other people. Because it has no meaning, no context, and it's not whatever I want it to be. John says, this is the one who brings the message, but he appeared to us. And beloved, notice that the eternal word doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. We live in a day that is always trying to make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant. You don't make it relevant. God's word is relevant. It's relevant to every situation, every aspect, every circumstance, everything in our life. It relates to everything in principle and precept. It addresses everything. God's word is perfect. It's refined. It's been purified seven times, the psalm writer says. It needs no revision. It needs no updating. There's no exclusion. There's no additions, no adding to it. It is perfect, the word of God. We must listen. We must hear. We must declare the word that was given to us in Scripture. And that alone, stop trying to make things relevant for people in this world. Stop trying to not offend people by bringing the gospel. The gospel is an offense. The gospel is an offense. You must believe on Christ is a clear declaration that you are under the wrath of God and you are a wretched individual apart from salvation and the covering that only Christ can provide. Can we find that right from the beginning? I mean, you think about Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they run and they hide and they put on fig leaves. And immediately, beloved... Genesis 3.15 is exactly what we have. It's clear. It's manifest. Right in the beginning. God comes and takes the fig leaves off because that can't cover you. People are always putting on the fig leaves. I've done this. I've been a good person. I contributed that. I'm a philanthropist. I'm nice. I opened the doors. I served in the church. I cooked at funerals. Fig leaves. It's all fig leaves. The only covering is the covering God provides. The covering that we see in Genesis 3 is the lamb skins. I'm certain it's lamb skins. It reflects the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he covers Adam and Eve. And that's the only covering that there is to cover us from the wrath of God. How do I get that covering? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's the Holy Spirit who gives faith. I know it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates. But you must believe. You're saying, but, but I can't believe unless the Spirit of God regenerates me and creates faith. Exactly. But you must believe. God doesn't believe for you. You must believe. You must trust. You must abandon Everything in your life, every hope that you have of anything that you have done or who you are, and you need to run to Christ. You need to fly to Him. There is no other hope. 
I'll give you just two accounts. That one in Genesis, God covers. If He doesn't cover, you're not covered. Let me say it as plain as I can. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ right now, you are uncovered before the wrath of God. If you are trusting anything other than Jesus, you are uncovered before the wrath of God. You are under the wrath of God. God's wrath and curse are upon you now. If you say that you must trust Jesus, plus you must do these things, you're uncovered before the wrath of God. You're exposed to the wrath and severe judgment of God. You must trust Him as your only rock and refuge, beloved. The other example is given in John 3. And that's exactly what John says. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What's the importance of that? Moses was told by the Lord, erect a pole. These people that were bit by snakes, they, he was to erect a pole, put it on a bronze, uh, the bronze serpent on the pole, stick it in the middle of the camp, and tell the people to look to the bronze serpent, and they would be healed of their snake bite. <clears throat> There's no other way to be healed from your snake bite. It took an act of faith, didn't it? It was believing God. Because the rationalist among them would say, there's no way that that bronze serpent on a pole is going to heal me of my snake bite. It's an act of faith. Those who believed God looked to the bronze serpent and they were healed. What's the importance? There was one who was lifted up. One that was lifted up to die for the sins of his people. And all who run to Him, believe on Him, trust in Him, look to Him, are saved from all of their sins. Not the temporal snake bite, but that everlasting bite of sin that poisons all of us and brings us down into hell. Look to Him and be saved. The scripture is full of these analogies, the illusions, these types and figures and shadows looking to the word of life. The message doesn't change. Christ doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is fully, truly God, fully, truly man, in one person, forever at the right hand of the Father, and there we worship Him. And so John says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. Notice the believers believing have fellowship with one another. This is a koinonia, partnership. Um, they, they partake of something together. What are they partaking of? The fellowship is not only with the saints, but it's with the Godhead. The church has fellowship with the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You remember uh, Revelation 1. Christ walks among the candlesticks. Beloved, He's here. By His Spirit, He's here among us. Christ is among us. He's ministering to each one of us with His Word. He walks among His people. Does that reality come home to you? That Christ is at no time absent from us? He is among us now. He is causing you to hear His voice. This is the Christ that we worship. We have fellowship, koinonia, union, partnership with Him. We are in Him. He is in us. 
You can't have that union, that fellowship, unless you are believing on Christ. If you are believing on Christ, you have that fellowship. You are part of the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed, the saints. And you are in union and fellowship with Him. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. We are fellowshipping with the Father, the Son, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit right now as we worship the true and living God. That, that is awesome. That's humbling. That, that's that's mind-blowing to think of the fact that we are worshiping now in union and fellowship with the triune Godhead who walks among us and ministers to our souls. John says, we write these things to you that your joy may be full. Do you have the joy of knowing that you are in fellowship, in union, koinonia, partnership with the Lord? Fellow workers with the Lord, laboring for the kingdom of Christ, declaring the gospel, living the truth, calling men to believe, speaking the truth, going everywhere. We are the salt and the light. Do you have joy in that? Or, or, or maybe your, your joy has been sapped because you don't speak. What would you say about a lighthouse that didn't give light? What would you say about salt on a table that didn't salt your food, didn't flavor your food? What would you say about that? What would you do? Get rid of it, right? It's lost its savor. It's not showing itself to be a true lighthouse. It's not showing itself to be that which truly savors and what salt is called to do. Throw it out. Throw it to the dung heap. That's the branch that is connected to the vine but doesn't bear fruit. It's snapped off and thrown into the fire. Joy. My joy I give you. My peace I give you. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is not touched by temporal experiences, by my situations, my circumstances, the difficult things. Joy is never taken from the child of God. Maybe a temporal happiness, but not joy. Joy is abiding. Joy is in the Lord. Joy is in Christ. We joy and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, think about this. All of your sins have been forgiven because of Christ's namesake. You bear your sins no more. He has bore the burden of the wrath of God against your sins. You're a child of God. You're washed. You're cleansed. You've been raised up. Are you believing? Are you trusting the word of life? You have that confidence assurance in Jesus Christ that you are a child. You've been washed. And then what do you do? Like the catechism lesson. You forgive others. You have been forgiven. You walk in forgiveness. What do you do as the people of God? You rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. You, you sprinkle that on other people, don't you? You speak to them about joy in the Lord. You speak to them about the peace that transcends all understanding in Jesus Christ. That's what you speak because you have union with the Godhead. Beloved, we come and we come to the Christmas season and it's always eclipsed. It's always eclipsed by the pagan music. It's eclipsed by people frantically running and trying to buy gifts and things and not thinking of the meaning and the reason that we even celebrate. I, I don't understand. For the life of me, I have no understanding of why the pagan wants to celebrate Christmas. It's not a joy to the unbelievers. It's not good news that the king is born. 
It's not good news that He sits and rules and reigns in the kingdom of heaven. It's not good news for the unbeliever who doesn't believe on Him and therefore all things are working together for their destruction. Let's gather and have a Christmas celebration. Makes no sense. It's always only about Him. Don't let this season be eclipsed by the world, by your traditions, by your families. It is always only about Jesus coming to redeem a multitude which no man could number. Don't let any of the things of this earth eclipse the glory of the word of life. It's staggering to the mind that God the Son would take upon Himself human nature and He would be found in the appearance of a man born under the law, subject to the law and to all of the things in this world, the frailties in this world, the difficulties of this world. For what? To redeem a multitude that could not redeem themselves. What what love is this? What love that we should be called God's children? Why did this happen? That God would be all in all, glorified in the Son. Remember that when you gather on the Lord's Day when you gather for your your family meals, when you gather with family traditional things, remember the focus and the center of all things is the centerpiece of all of Scripture, Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh to save us from our sins. Amen. Shall we pray?